0: Well good morning everybody, so good to see you and I wanna welcome you to week number two of our Christmas series, God With Us. We're studying here at Southwinds, Matthew's account of the very first Christmas and as I think you all well know, it is less than two weeks until Christmas and I am sure that about now many of us are beginning to really count the cost of celebrating Christmas. I looked some things up this week and uh, saw that Americans will spend over $850 billion this year on Christmas. Surveys say that the average American family will spend $998 on Christmas gifts. And in some informal surveying that I've done this week, I think that figure sounds kind of low. And truth is, there are many people who actually will go into debt to pay for Christmas, there are many people who will be paying for Christmas you know, well into the new year. And all of that is to say that Christmas is costly. But in reality, there are far greater costs to Christmas than just paying for gifts and food and decorations and travel. We're gonna talk today about the cost of Christmas because there is one person possibly for whom the first Christmas was more costly than for any other person. His name is Joseph. He is the adoptive father of Jesus. And we're gonna look together at the events that led to that first Christmas and see in them how Joseph paid an incredible price. I want you to join with me uh, by opening a copy of the scriptures. If you have a Bible with you or uh, get it open on your phone, I'm gonna read Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25 as we continue working our way through Matthew's account. This is what he writes beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And this is God's word to us today. Now here's the main thought that we have today and I'd encourage you to write it down and think about it. Joseph's life demonstrates that true faith is always costly costly. And here's what I want to ask you to really think about. Do you believe that? Do you believe that true faith is always costly? And maybe more important than that is a second question. Is that true in your life? I heard a dad recently tell about a conversation that he had with his younger son. He'd gotten into some trouble and so he was talking through some things with him and he said, son, if I have a toy and it's my toy, that means I can do whatever I want with it, right? And his son said, yes. Dad said, but if I give you that toy and now it's your toy, what does that mean? And his son said, well, it means I can do whatever I want with it. And his dad said, yes. And he said, son, right now, your life belongs to you. What does that mean? And his son said, it means I can do whatever I want. And dad said, not under my roof, He actually said he just thought that. (laughs) What he actually said was, yes, that's true. But Jesus asks us to give our lives to him. And what would that mean? His son said, it means he can ask me to do anything. And again, I wanna ask you, do you think that that is true? If we give our lives to Jesus, can he ask us to do anything? That leads to another question that's related. How do you define faith? You know, in our culture, people tend to think of faith as just this like generalized belief in a higher power. There there are many Christians who think of faith as just believing that Jesus is the son of God. But the truth is, the reality is according to God's word, faith is far more than just intellectual agreement with certain truths. As a matter of fact, in the Greek New Testament, there is one word for faith, That gets translated into English in three ways. It's the Greek word that's pronounced pistis in Greek. You can see that up on the screen. It's just one word, but our New Testament translates it not only as faith, but also as belief, and also as trust. One word with three very different connotations in English. Anyone here ever bungee jumped? Anyone here ever want to bungee jump, I mean, just go ahead and raise your hands. I'm kind of curious to to see where we are about that. Um, Is there there anyone here, I mean, or how many of you, like, you would push your grandma off the bungee platform before you jumped? You raise your hands. Now here's the, here's the thing, I can believe that bungee jumping would be fun, right? I, I, can, I can have faith that the bungee cord is strong enough that it is not going to break, don't have to worry about that. I can, I can believe that, uh, that the bungee people made it the right length so it's not too long and I splatter on the rocks. I can believe all of that, but until I jump, I haven't really trusted anything. See, here's the thing, faith is a commitment To trust God no matter what he asks us. And faith is something that requires us to trust our lives. And that means all that we are and all that we have. Faith requires us to trust our lives into the hands of a God that we believe is good. And that is true faith. Now, Matthew is showing us in these verses that Joseph is an example of this kind of faith. It's true faith. It's a faith that actually costs him. Matthew is showing us that that Joseph's faith, that that, that faith through which God brings the Savior into the world is the same faith that God calls us to if we are truly to follow him. Maybe you notice in verse 18 that Matthew tells us that, that Mary is pledged or Some of your translations will say betrothed to Joseph, and we hear that today, and we think engagement, because that's really the only category we have. But betrothal and engagement are nowhere near the same thing. Betrothal was a legal agreement between two families that they entered into by signing a contract. They would do that in the presence of other witnesses. And then once betrothed, the couple would be legally considered husband and wife even though they weren't officially married. They would be considered husband and wife even though they were going to live still with their parents for up to about a year until the wedding. During that year, as a betrothed couple, they would have little or no contact with each other. Any sexual contact during that time would be considered adultery until the wedding day. And maybe you notice that that's why Joseph and Mary are referred to as husband and wife in these verses, even though there hasn't actually been a wedding. See, betrothal is very different than engagement. And in that context, it's before the wedding, during the betrothal period, that Mary is discovered to be pregnant. Now, Matthew is telling the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective And as Joseph sees it, the only reasonable explanation is that Mary has been unfaithful. And so he begins making plans to divorce her. But as Joseph is making plans, God comes to him in a dream and God tells him that this child Mary is carrying is from the Holy Spirit, that this child is the Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that he's the Messiah that the people have been waiting for. And Joseph responds in faith. He obeys God. He takes Mary as his wife. He adopts Jesus as his very own son. Now I wanna draw out of what we see happening here for you three things that Joseph's life demonstrates for us about true faith. Here's the first one, you can write this down. True faith requires letting go of control. Letting go of control. I have a question right now. Anybody break out in a little bit of a cold sweat? at the thought of letting go of control? How how many of you right now, you would just be willing to be honest and admit I'm kind of a control freak? Anybody, yeah, it's a lot of hands here. Uh, How many of you are sitting next to someone who is a control freak and you feel fine about raising your hand about them? Yeah. So control is something we all struggle with. True faith requires that we let go of control. Now, as far as we can tell, Mary and Joseph are a, a model couple. They, they seem to be good people who are trying to follow God, doing everything in the right way, following the customs of their day. I was remembering this week, um, a long time ago, Dan and I are about to celebrate in a few days our 36th wedding anniversary. And uh, actually, when I thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um when I proposed to Dana, I was still in graduate school, I didn't have a job, and I was in debt. That's what you call a triple threat. Um, see, I'm telling you today, hey, if, you know, if, if some guy like that starts approaching you, or if he starts approaching your daughter, watch out, that's, that's a threat, you know? But in first century Jewish culture, to be able even to consider marriage, a a young man had to have his life together, and Joseph did, he had a trade that he was working. He had had been working to make a home, he had been working to make a life for himself and for Mary. Now, the, the Gospels don't give us a lot of details about Mary and Joseph, but Matthew tells us here that Joseph is a righteous man, that he's a good man. You go over to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes that Mary was was favored by God. He tells us that God was with her. And so you have this couple and Joseph and Mary, they would have had plans. They would have had dreams and hopes for for marriage and family, for their, their work, and I'm sure they were just like all other couples, eagerly anticipating what God had for them. They were full of hope for the future, and it seemed for them like everything was going according to plan. But there was just one problem. God, well, he had another plan. I, I know some couples, maybe you've known them too. They, they get married with a 10-year plan. and It's all laid out, written out, spreadsheet, the whole thing. You know, They plan to get married. They're gonna work a few years and they're gonna travel the world while it's just them so they can experience all this good stuff in life. Kids are gonna come along after you know, eight or nine years. The husband's gonna be established in his career enough. Maybe the wife won't have to work and take care of the kids. And then they're gonna have two kids. They're gonna have a boy and a girl two years apart. But God has a different plan and they get pregnant on their honeymoon. (laughs) See, in life, right, so many things, they just will not go our way, right? We, We can't control everything and if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know we can't control anything. And in fact, I'll say, a pregnant virgin demonstrates we truly do not have control over our lives. Did you notice, maybe in this account that God's not coming to Joseph to ask his permission. Have, have you noticed when God changes the plan for you, he doesn't ask your permission? Uh, it's interesting to see that he's not even coming to Joseph to give him a warning. You know, he, he allows Joseph to experience the shock before he tells him what's it about. It, it seems like he, he waits for a while as Joseph wrestles and struggles, agonizes with Mary's preposterous claim that she's still a virgin. It's like, please, Joe, I swear, I swear it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, what, what do you do with that? And the life that Joseph was planning just blows up in his face. I'm telling you, this is way worse than a honeymoon baby. See, God does not always work according to plan. You know, for some of us, it's the opposite of a honeymoon baby because some of you, are, you're here today and you know the ache of infertility. You know the heartbreak of finding out month, after month, after month, that a baby is still not coming. See, all Joseph's plans in an instant just gets shot down by God's greater plan for his life. And if this hasn't happened to you yet, I'm just telling you today, it will, it will. Many of you know exactly what it's like to have God change your plan for his greater plan because you've realized we, we have no real control of our lives and this is something that true faith requires us to let go of. We have to let go of control. Now, truth is we should be wise and prudent. We should pray and we should plan and we should make good decisions in our lives but we always have to be open to the reality that sometimes God's plan is different than ours, and that's faith. And in those moments, faith means that we trust God regardless of what happens because we don't have control. Faith is letting go of control. Now, Joseph... He responds to this news in the only way that he can see. I mean, he's going to divorce Mary. That's the only thing that makes sense. But he's a good man, a righteous man. So he doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to shame her. He'll do it quietly, do it privately. But he's not going to let this pregnancy ruin his plans for his life. He's going to do what many of us do just try to mitigate the damage by controlling whatever it is that he has left to control. And then God shows up one night and in a dream tells Joseph, Don't be afraid says, Joseph, you can take Mary as your wife because I am doing something that you cannot possibly fathom. It's in the midst of Joseph trying to regain control that God calls him to faith. And I was thinking about this this week. I mean, would you agree with me that the last two years um, have not gone like the way any of us have planned? Would you agree? I mean, we have all during this time had to face the fact that we are not in control that we are not in control, it doesn't even matter how much we think we're in control of our lives, it's even in those areas where we thought it seemed like we had some control, we discovered we didn't even have as much there as we thought we did. See, when we are tempted, and we all do this to try to, to fight, to regain control, to, to protect ourselves, to try somehow, some way to make our plans work out. Joseph's story is calling us to faith. And I'm just asking you, is there an area in your life where God is right now calling you to let go of control and trust him? You know, when I think about these issues, I often think about the big parts of our lives. And a lot of times it gets summed up with these three words, money, sex, and power And you can pretty much look at your whole life under those three headings and ask yourself questions in those areas and see if you're letting God have control of your life. Uh, With money, last Sunday, our our church family approved our 2022 annual budget. And in our annual family meeting, I often make the observation to the people that are there that in a typical year, typically uh, about 20% of our church family gives over 80% of the income, the resources that we receive to do ministry. Some people who hear that must assume that there's some really rich people in our church. That's actually not the case at all. It doesn't mean rich people are giving a lot of money. What it means is that there are people probably pretty much just like you who make sacrifices. Some of them who make significant sacrifices, who are generous and they wanna give because they believe that, that Jesus really did die on the cross for the world's sin, that he really did rise from the dead, that all of his promises are true, that his kingdom is eternal, and that Jesus, he really is the only hope for this dark world. And I will just tell you today in this area, if you're someone who struggles with generosity, if you struggle with making sacrifices in this area of money, uh, I'll tell you why. Fundamentally, it's because you don't want to give up control. And that is at the heart of true faith. Now, one of the things I know in this area is that people who lack confidence in God's promises typically from time to time will throw a little bit of guilt money in the plate. You've all, we've all done that, right? You know, but, but they're never gonna give in a sustained, in a generous, in a sacrificial way. I was sharing with some people recently who asked me some questions about where we are as a church financially. And I, I told them, even within the context of building a brand new building and you know, having a pandemic you know, hit right after we opened this new building and taking on a significant amount of debt because we were seeking to reach more people for Christ, even in that context, many people have been faithful, but of course, many also have not. And I shared with someone who asked about it, you know, it's really this simple. You can you can just see small, sustained efforts and growing in generosity would make all the difference in the world. If if each Southwind's family just gave on average ten dollars more a week, we would make our budget and have almost enough to pay for our debt. If everyone gave on average twenty dollars more a week, we would have above and we would have beyond all the things that we need. We would not need to have a capital campaign. We would not need to have breakthrough. It would just flow from the regular, sustained generosity of our church family. But that takes faith. It takes letting go of control. It takes trusting God to provide for my needs even when I give some of what he's given me Away. Do you trust God to take care of your needs in that area? I could, I could keep going into matters of, of sexuality. Do you trust God to meet your needs according to his way that he's explained to you in his book, that you would obey him even when it feels like you're not getting your needs met? Are you gonna trust him? Are you gonna trust God in the area of power I was thinking about what would be an example of that and one of the areas that came to me was forgiving people who have hurt you. Some of you have been wounded deeply by people in your life and you are holding on to the power to not forgive them, to not let them go even though God tells you that you are to forgive those who have sinned against you, right? Right? Will you trust God enough to forgive those who have hurt you, to forgive those who have sinned against you? I, I came across just a couple of days ago an incredible example of forgiveness. Some of you have heard about this, I'm sure. Um, earlier this week, a police officer in the Dallas, Texas area was shot and killed while he was answering a call. There's been a a funeral service and there is a video that's going around uh, that shows this man's 18-year-old daughter expressing her desire to forgive the man who killed her dad so that he might somehow some way come to know Jesus Christ and be saved and receive eternal life that kind of forgiveness requires a massive release of control and God calls us to trust him. God calls us to lean on him, to believe that his plans are always better than ours, to believe that if we do what he says, he will always take care of us, he will always provide for all our needs. Do you understand that following Jesus means trusting Jesus and trusting Jesus means releasing control? Trusting him to provide for you, to take care of you. See, we trust God and his control. That is at the heart of faith. And so I wanna ask again, because I don't want you to hear this and just move on. Where in your life do you need to let go of control? Are you willing to be courageous enough to face that today? Are you willing to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what that is if it doesn't really pop into your mind real quick. Because here's the thing, I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, if you ask the Holy Spirit that question, he's gonna answer. He's gonna answer. He'll tell you where you need to let go of control. So where do I need to let go of control? That's the first thing about true faith. The second thing that we see in Joseph's life is that true faith requires letting go of reputation and identity, and this begins to really get to the heart of what the first Christmas cost Joseph. Uh, go back again to verse 19 where Matthew says Joseph was, and notice this phrase, a righteous man. There's a real rich history behind this idea that the Hebrew word for a righteous man is pronounced "sadik," "sadik," And this is Joseph's identity. He was a sadik. You can see that word transliterated. Also, you can see the Hebrew word up on this screen. I want you to kind of get into this. Say it with me. Can you say Sadiq? Sadiq. And if you're doing it right, you're gonna kind of get this little spray of mist coming out when you say it. That's the right way to do that. So right now, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, don't do that. I have, I have a... Learned a lot about Joseph from a scholar named Scott McKnight. I did a PhD work with him a number of years ago. In fact, a little fun factoid about the Nolan family. The reason we have a child named Matthew is doing this work. I just kind of fell in love during that season with the theology of Matthew and the gospel of Matthew as I was studying with, with Dr. McKnight. But he, in one of his writings, discusses uh, Joseph's status as a sadiq. And he says that being a Sadiq means that Joseph was known for uncompromising obedience to Torah, to the law of Moses. He didn't eat unclean foods. He didn't mix with the right kind of people. He didn't keep his shop open on the Sabbath to earn a few extra drachmas. He was a Sadiq, and that was his identity and everyone knew it. You know, no one, no one invited Joseph over for ham sandwiches with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes. And Joseph This righteous man, he was the kind of man people want to be. Like a a businessman in our day wants to be Jeff Bezos or maybe Elon Musk. Like like someone born in Bakersfield wants to live anywhere else. You know? (laughs) Like a Dodgers fan would give anything to have half as many World Series rings this century as giants do. You know, um, all Israelites wanted to be the Sadiq because then you were respected. Then you were someone, and that was Joseph. But he was a sadiq with a problem. See, the girl that he's promised to marry, well, she's having a baby, and Joseph knows whoever the father is, it's not him. Now, both Joseph and Mary live in a the town of Nazareth. It was a small town, and as a general rule, you can imagine a lot of gossip goes on in small towns. And so, what we really have is a Sadiq and a pregnant fiance in a small village where everyone knows everyone else's business. And as a Sadiq, Joseph's reputation, his identity, revolves around that one thing his commitment to the Torah, what the Torah says you do, what the Torah says that's who you are. And the Torah has very clear instructions about what a sadiq does when a fiance is in Mary's condition. There's a whole section in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22 that that covers marriage violations. You can look that up sometime. Uh, But in one verse, verse 21, it tells us this. If a woman who's pledged to be married is unfaithful, it says, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. Now, if this seems unreal to you, maybe in recent years, maybe you've heard of similar cases on the news in other countries around the world. But in Joseph's day, the law is painfully clear, and his reputation as a Sadiq was on the line and everyone in the village knew what Joseph was to do, all his fellow Sadikim, they knew what he was supposed to do. He was to punish, he was to expose this sin. But Matthew tells us, Joseph couldn't quite bring himself to do this. You read between the lines, it seems like he agonized over this. We, we don't know for how long, but, but he could not bring himself to say the words, to go public, even though he was a Sadiq righteous man it doesn't take a lot of imagination to to know how much agony he must have been going through day after day and then one day uh, this angel comes to joseph and joseph he already knows that mary is pregnant so here's a question to think about how did he find out who told him mary was pregnant well probably mary and again you need to put yourself in his place. You know, this is real life. This is not a Christmas movie. We, we sometimes, we, we've already run to the end of the Christmas story and we forget what it would've been like to live the Christmas story. But Joseph is engaged and his fiance comes to him and she says, I, I have bad news and good news. The bad news is I'm pregnant even though we're not married. The good news is I haven't been with anyone else. She goes on to say, an angel, an angel came to me and said, Hail Mary, you are full of grace. She said, Joseph, I'm gonna have a miracle baby. And Joseph, all generations, the angel told me, all generations will call me blessed, except for Protestants. And Joseph, a a desperation pass in a football game, thrown with time running out is going to be named after me. It's gonna be amazing, Joseph. I'm gonna uh, conceive a child miraculously, even though I'm a virgin. And I know it's never happened before, but there's a first time for everything, Joe. Now, how do you receive that? (laughs) I mean, you know she tried to convince him she was innocent because she was. But imagine Joseph's struggle. Most likely, Mary was only 13 or 14 years old most likely, Joseph's father had arranged this marriage and there's a real good chance that Joseph didn't know her terribly well at this point and he's looking at her and she seems to be sincere, but an angel? Virgin birth? no way. And so Matthew tells her that he's going to, so Matthew tells us that he's going to divorce her quietly And that way he can minimize her suffering, but he can still maintain his status as a sadiq. And then in verse 20, God sends this message to Joseph. And I want you to look at the screen and see if you can figure out the key word in this verse. It's that word after, right? Think about it. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And I have a question about that. Why why did God make Joseph wait? Why did God make Joseph wait until after he had had to think and wrestle and ponder and struggle with all this stuff? Why couldn't an angel have come to him ahead of time and told him what was about to happen, explain everything and just remove all that anxiety? Is it possible that anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph? or or maybe for you and for me? See, is it possible that in losing control and getting his world turned upside down and, and having to wrestle and struggle between what he thought a Sadiq ought to do and, and his longing to be merciful to this young girl, is it possible that maybe, maybe God was preparing Joseph to come to a whole new understanding of faith? Is it possible, is it possible that God is preparing Joseph to come to a whole new understanding of whose opinion really matters? And is it possible that God is calling you to a true faith, a faith where you truly trust him for your reputation and your identity? See, we live in a culture that doesn't accept what we believe. In fact, our our culture increasingly mocks what we believe. Our culture increasingly wants to cancel truth for the preferred ideology of the day. And friends, it is so true and it is so sad. Many people, many people who say they follow Christ are even now succumbing to that pressure. They are adopting what the culture believes and they are calling it love and they're even putting Jesus' name on it. You know, recent days, I've watched different people who say they're Christians, but they're not willing to pay the price for truth, who who care more about likes on social media, who are more interested in what the world thinks about them than what God thinks about them, from scholars to pastors to just people in church. And really, it's always been that way. Because just because we say we have faith doesn't mean we have true faith. And true faith, true faith requires that we let go of our reputation and identity. Our reputation and identity. That moves us right into the third thing that Joseph's life demonstrates. True faith requires letting go of comfort. Now this one flows directly out of the last one. The loss of reputation and identity For Joseph would have flown right into a loss of comfort. To go back to verse 20 again, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, why would Joseph be afraid to marry Mary? Of course, he would be afraid of offending God, of violating the Torah, but it's not just that. Joseph would have been afraid of of losing his reputation. He would have known that this would change his life forever. He would be afraid of what everyone was gonna think about him. People would think what people always think when a pregnant girl gets married. Joseph knew that if he married her, no one would ever accept his story. He knew that his life was gonna change, that he would not be invited to the homes of the other side of He knew that he was gonna lose their business. He knew that he was never again gonna be admired and respected. And that had been his whole life. See, if he committed himself to this baby, to this one who would be known as Jesus, he would do so at enormous personal sacrifice. His whole reputation, the work of his entire life was gonna be trashed. The angel says, do not be afraid. And remarkably, don't miss this, Matthew tells us as what Joseph does precisely, he does precisely what the angel commands him. He does two courageously obedient things we see in verses 24 and 25. First, he took Mary home as his wife. And this was a a legal step. It meant that he was publicly claiming her as his wife. It meant that Joseph completed the wedding ceremony. He claims her publicly. She's his wife. And then second, it says he named the baby, and this too is a legal action. And in the act of naming the child, he is doing a second courageous thing. Joseph is publicly adopting this child as his son. Now here's what this means. Legally Joseph has now deliberately and publicly tied his destiny to the lives of two stained reputations. See, Joseph believed. He had faith. He trusted in the word of God's messenger, the angel, even though he didn't know how it was all gonna work out. That is true faith. He made a decision. And friends, if you understand it, if you get it, it should blow you away. Joseph has decided that his days as a sadiq, as a righteous man, they are over and whatever the future has for him, it will not be the life of comfort and respectability that he'd always planned and dreamed of. I wanna show you how fully Joseph bet the farm, how how he risked everything on what God was doing. I want you to maybe turn to the person next to you. You can tell them if you know the answer to this question. How many many brothers and sisters did Jesus have And, and what were their names, anybody know that? Doesn't look like too many do, so I'll give you the answer. We find it in Mark 6. He had four brothers. Their names were James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. His sisters were named Heather and Brittany. Um, Just made that up. Um, We actually don't know um, how many sisters he had or what their names were. But if you go to Mark 6 and you go to verse 3, you'll see that we're told the names of his brothers. And it's actually a little hard Uh, to tell from the English translation, but let me give you the significance. Here are their names, it says this. um, Mark 6, three, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? See, each of these brothers' names is the Greek version of the Hebrew name for one of Israel's great patriarchs, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simeon. And scholars say it may well be that Joseph and Mary gave their sons these names because they were trusting that through their first son, through Yeshua, through Jesus, God is going to act one more time to renew his people. One more time to fulfill his plan for a redeemed community. And that would have just meant that every time they they call their sons to dinner, every time Jesus says the names of his brothers, they are as a family remembering God's love for this people he's created for himself. That's what God is up to in the birth of this little baby. There's more there than that. It it also may be in Mark 6, three, that we see part of the price that Joseph paid the cost. When the people say about Jesus, do you see the question at the beginning of this verse? Isn't this Mary's son? See, Joseph, most scholars believe, is probably dead by now. He doesn't ever show up during the time of Jesus' ministry. We, we, we have to believe he's gone off the scene. But even if a father had died, a man in Israel was always referred to as the son of his father. It would have been Jesus bar Joseph. And to refer to a man as the son of the mother was a harsh expression in Aramaic. It was something very much like a very crude English phrase where someone calls someone else a son of a, and then they use a real crude, real insulting word about the mother. Mark 6, 3 may reflect that not just years, but decades 30 years later, in their little village that Joseph's reputation still has not recovered from his marriage to this pregnant, unwed girl. And it's just amazing. It's just amazing to think how after Joseph died in the decades and the centuries and the millennia now to follow, that there have been billions of people who have made sacrifices for the man that they, they call Jesus, how many have given up their status, given up their possessions, given up their convenience, given up their freedom, even given up their lives. But in a very real sense, Joseph was the first. Joseph gave up his identity. He gave up his reputation for Jesus. And Joseph hadn't even seen him yet. And I think about how for Joseph... How when he looked into people's eyes after he'd obeyed God, life was never the same again. How eyes that used to look up to him in admiration and respect, those those looks all of us hunger for, they just look the other way after this. But when he looked into the eyes of that little child named Jesus, when he saw the love and adoration of a two or three-year-old boy, he knew he had done the right thing. And Joseph became, I think, in many ways, the first person to learn that who he is in the eyes of everyone in this world doesn't really matter too much. Only who he is in the eyes of this one called Jesus. In reflecting, in reflecting on the amazing things that are going on at Christmas, maybe it is so that God has decided that Jesus, who would be called a friend of sinners, Jesus should be raised in a family that knew firsthand what it felt like to be regarded in that spiritually second class category. Maybe part of the reason why Jesus had such a heart for unrespectable people is that he was raised in a family by a father who sacrificed his respectability for his son. Maybe. Maybe one reason Jesus had so much compassion for women who were walking scandals is that he knew what it meant to his mom. What it meant to his mom that his dad had stuck by her when she was single and pregnant and and all the righteous people were saying he should just walk away. I think of how much Jesus must have admired his dad's courage as he was growing up. And, And I think later after Joseph was long dead and Jesus was a grown man and he was, he was engaged in his ministry, I think about how he taught in Matthew five twenty in that Sermon on the Mount, he said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that old system, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And think about how Jesus must have been thinking inside. I have seen this better kind of righteousness firsthand because my dad was such a man. Maybe God had a reason for this odd and painful and lonely way to start a family. Maybe it makes more sense than we would think. Maybe, maybe God still calls people to be willing to die to reputation, to die to status, to die to comfort for the sake of love. Maybe that's the heart of true faith. Maybe, maybe that's why we worship a Savior the savior who too was crucified who also gladly saw his reputation as a righteous man a sadiq trashed for the sake of sinners that he would never stop loving true faith friends do you see it true faith is always costly And I have to ask you, I wanna ask you, I don't want you to walk out. I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to move on. I have to ask you again, does your faith right now cost you in any way? Maybe it doesn't. And maybe it doesn't because you have never let go of control, you have never released your reputation You have never been willing to set aside your comfort. Maybe you are trusting in those things instead of trusting in God. I began earlier by telling you about a conversation that a dad had with his son. And he recognized the son did, this young son, that in giving his life to Jesus, it meant Jesus could ask him to do anything. The dad then in that conversation asked his son, so how does that make you feel? And his son said, scared. Dad said, why does it scare you? And the son said, because I don't know what Jesus will ask me to do. And that's true. You don't know. You don't know what Jesus will ask you to do. But we do know What Jesus was willing to give. He did not ask anything from us that He didn't already abundantly provide for us at the expense of His own life. I mean, just think about giving up control. (laughs) Jesus had all power. He really was in control of the universe, but he didn't use it to protect himself from pain and from shame. He used it to receive all our pain and all our shame into himself. He didn't use his rights to do whatever he wanted. He lived entirely dependent on a poor teenage mother. He came into this world, our world, not in a palace, not as a king. He didn't even come to live in a nice home. He came and was born in an animal's feeding trough. And he also gave up reputation. Though he is the eternal son of God, he spent his entire human life being regarded as the illegitimate bastard son of Mary. And then comfort. Maybe you remember on the way to the cross, Jesus stops in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if there is any other way to bring salvation to your people, do do not make me go through with this. But he entrusted himself to the will of God regardless of what it cost. And he entrusted himself into the hands of God and God delivered him into the hands of religious leaders who condemned him to death and into the hands of the Romans who crucified him. And so by Joseph and Mary's willingness to trust God and give up control and give up reputation and give up comfort, Jesus came into This world. And by his own willingness, his own willingness to suffer and experience pain, all the while trusting his Father, Jesus died to save the world. And he was raised from the dead, and he was given the name above every name. So that that baby in the manger. He is the Christ on the cross. He is the king on the throne. And we do not know what our king will require of us, but we do know what our king has given us. He has given us everything. He has given us himself. Christmas is costly because true faith is always, always costly. And I want you to hear it again, you cannot, you cannot be a true follower of Jesus without paying a price. You have to give up control. You have to give up reputation and identity. You have to give up comfort. See, it is by faith, by faith, in the reality That Jesus, that little baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus is God with us. It is by faith in that reality that we can follow him, even when it costs us everything. This is the word of the Lord for us today, Southwinds. All God's people together say, Amen. amen. Would you bow as we pray?